Observing the Radcliffe Wave on episode 286 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this episode is for anybody else who uh, likes to look at the nighttime sky. And tonight we're going to talk about the objects you can see in a wave in space. So today on the show, we have a special guest, uh, a returning guest, actually, who has a PhD in laser spectroscopy. He writes about astronomy and stargazing on his cosmicpursuits.com and also writes for Canada Sky News magazine, uh, which is the astronomy magazine here in Canada. He's a contributing editor for Sky and Telescope magazine. We're in January. Uh, in the January edition, uh, the latest article appears by Brian, which is titled Riding the Radcliffe Wave, Trace Objects Along This Newly Discovered Structure in the Milky Way. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Great to have you. Thanks, Chris and Shane. Good to be here. My apologies. We had some technical glitches here tonight, and we're I'm cobbling things together uh, very MacGyverish, like <laughs> not uncommon in astronomy to have technical glitches. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure people will relate. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. So That's why you. my eyepiece case has duct tape and screwdrivers. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. We had you on about uh, six months ago. Actually, when this airs, it's going to be six months uh, within a day of when you were last on the show. So th thanks so much for coming on again. Good to be here. Yes, I think it was episode 234, an easy one to remember. Excellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yesterday we did, uh, I was seeing we did a marathon uh, session, Sheen and I did, that is, where we recorded five episodes. So I was saying this is very much like a podcast dessert for us. So we're really excited for this episode. <laughs> I'll try to do all the work here. You guys must be tired. You guys must be tired. <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah, and I think we're both working today too. So at our, at our regular desk jobs. But um, before we get going, talking about the Radcliffe Wave, uh, just mention your website uh, a little bit cosmicpursuits.com uh, I, I, I'm familiar with it because sometimes when I'm doing my own uh, web searches for for the show or the other astronomy stuff that I do I, I run across your website and uh, I'd remember that there were some ebooks on there and I was actually going to ask you to see if we could give away one of the ebooks but then when I looked the ebook that I'd wanted to give away is something that that you're already giving away <laughs> yeah yeah that's right I mean so it's a, it's a cosmic pursuits is a site about people who want to uh, explore the night sky, either as armchair astronomers or hopefully hands-on astronomers. But a lot of the people who come to it have different backgrounds. Some, mm -hmm. some are, you know, hardened amateur astronomers and experts. Others are just getting started. So I offered a, a series of ebooks just to get everyone oriented, you know, so, so they can understand the articles once they start arriving in their inbox. Yeah, that's the one, and sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but the one that really caught my attention and maybe you could speak to uh, briefly would be uh, the choosing binoculars and telescopes for stargazing. Uh, that was a great ebook that uh, I think a lot of listeners might be interested in downloading. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, most people, when they think uh, astronomy, they want, they want telescopes, they want some hardware, some, some bling, right? Um, but there's some things, as you know, that people should understand before they get a telescope or even binoculars. So this kind of goes through the, the, the very basics of what you should know before you even spend any money on optics and then what you should look into when you're looking for binoculars, you know, do's and don'ts, uh, stay away from cheap optics, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of, kind of just gets people up to, up to speed. Yeah, it's, it's a nice section on the website. So um, when people go to cosmicpursuits.com, 
um, you've got a nice menu bar at the top. And then I think it's like a getting started or no, it says start here. Start and here. Yeah. Very clear. People know where to start. And then you can go in there and, uh, and you, you read into the first few paragraphs and then you've got these, these books sort of appropriately linked and they're, they're all free for download. I think if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Quite nice. Quite nice. Very cool. Um, and what, what were some of the other ones that you have in there? Just so people know. Um, there's one about uh, what to see with your telescope and, and um, binoculars, so things to see in the night sky. And there's a third one. I think it was just as, just a basic layout of the night sky. Again, it's just a, for any beginners who come across the site and want to read the articles, this helps them, you know, just get the basics really fast. Nice. So these uh, they can read through them, and there's also a free audio track if you want to hear the the That's sultry right. sound of my voice, I read through the books that you know people can put them on their iPad. So That's there's awesome. Stargazing 101, Night Sky for Beginners. Second ebook is What to See in the Night Sky. So moon planets, but also deep sky objects, just so people know they can tell an open cluster from a globular cluster from a planetary nebula. And then the third book is the Choosing Binoculars and Telescopes for Stargazing. So a little triumvirate there. That's yeah, great. Good resources. Um, well, we'll have to add that to our, our repeated list, Chris, of uh, recommendations for people, you know, maybe new to the hobby or, or maybe just getting back into the hobby. And yeah, and I'm really glad Brian mentioned um, the the audio files because I had gone and looked and saw those and and am a little bit flustered tonight because I've been running around trying to juggle things here. Um, but I did notice that. And what was um, neat about when I noticed it is I had uh, been been working on a I've been attending a class because I'm working on building a new course at, at my job at the university, and as part of that class, they were discussing um, ways in which you could make your um, courses um, more consumable to to different people. So, for example, some people may have challenges reading, or for example, with our audience. Um, they're an audience who, who enjoys listening um, versus maybe sitting down and, and reading something necessarily, especially where um, some people will even listen to stuff while they're on the way to go observing or while traveling back and forth to work um, or maybe even at the telescope and such. So I thought, wow, that's really good because I think it really handles the, um, you know, uh, the diversity of folks that we have who enjoy the program. So Yeah, absolutely. I love audio, even more than video even. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of people do. It's it's convenient. Yeah. So portable. You know, anywhere you are, you can be listening. Um, yep. It's sometimes hard to, you know, watch a video and drive. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm going to say this before we get going is I have your, this is, this is the latest edition of Sky News, which is a Canadian magazine, but... I don't know. I should have looked this up, but I, I haven't been able to determine if it's available in the States or other countries as well, but maybe it is. Um, I, I don't know offhand. I don't know. So I think people might be able to order it online, but because we're going to talk about maybe what might be qualified as a little bit more advanced topics tonight. And uh, perhaps what I want to say first is that if you want um, some of other Brian's um, maybe... Uh, more getting going information in the Sky News for January and February of 2023. There's an article in here called Sky Events of 2023, and you list the top 10 events. I'm not going to give a spoiler to any of those. 
And then as well, if you turn sort of just past, if there was a centerfold in this magazine, we would just pass the centerfold and, um, and you, you have an exploring the night sky for, uh, for the following two months uh, there. And so if people find this, uh, this conversation uh, a bit on the advanced or esoteric side, then uh, uh, both Brian's website, Cosmic Pursuits, as well as the Sky News Magazine for January and February would be, uh, would be a great place to get some more uh, sort of uh, novice uh, level information. All right. Shall we uh, dive into the Radcliffe wave? Let's jump in. Let's get our surfboards. <laughs> I think I'm going to put water wings on. All right. So, uh, so a few weeks ago, Brian, you uh, you and I were emailing uh, a little bit, and uh, you'd mentioned that your latest uh, Sky and Telescope article, which was titled uh, "Riding the Radcliffe Wave: Trace Targets Along This Newly Discovered Structure in the Milky Way," was out, and I was excited to read it. Um, because I'm always excited to read observing articles, uh, but then when I, as I was reading it, actually, um, I found it to be one of the, you know, better articles that I've read in the past few years on visual observing. Because you're really speaking uh, to me in this, which is uh, you're using your 85 millimeter uh, refractor, a, a fistful of filters, and uh, going out and observing some of these objects uh, for yourself, and uh, and really tying it in to some of the science. Uh, behind how some of these objects are connected and so that that's just such a beautiful tie-in to many of the objects which uh, i've recently been so it was right up my alley yeah there's uh there's a lot of stuff to say a lot of the objects that we're going to talk about tonight are are well known but what what wasn't well known is how they were physically connected uh which which was kind of intriguing and um mm -hmm. That's what uh, I think. That's what captured my attention when the Radcliffe wave was discovered. It was announced um, in uh, I think January 2020 by a group out of Harvard University and Radcliffe College, and they named it after the college. Um, and it's actually a coherent, like physically connected, coherent set of gas clouds. Uh, it's not just a random set. They seem to actually be physically connected to each other and likely formed at the same time. They seem to be moving together through space. Uh, it's a wave that goes below the plane of the galaxy, uh, through the plane of the galaxy, and above the plane of the galaxy. So it's like a it's like a, a damped sine wave, if you remember that from from uh, high school or university mathematics kind of a full maybe one and a half periods of a sine wave that's that's damped okay and it was discovered by uh, a pretty big group of researchers that were measuring the positions to to dark clouds uh, along the milky way um, well-known dark clouds from radio astronomers and so forth and uh, they used um, some data from the Gaia Space Telescope uh, and some pretty cool statistical techniques that are way beyond me to sort out the distances to these clouds, which weren't well known before, and uh, that found that all these things were connected. Very cool. And in reading, in reading the article, in the opening, uh, you reference Gould's Belt, which I think many amateur astronomers are going to be familiar with. 
and that perhaps um, the Radcliffe wave is is a bit of a replacement, or am I wording that right? Uh, of yeah, the yeah, that, that's that's a good point. So the researchers knew knew what Gould's Belt was, and just to to, to recap, Gould's Belt, as I understand it, it's um, it was kind of noticed by John Herschel from South Africa in, in the 1800s. And then in the late 1800s, by uh, American, astron American astronomer, um, I can't remember his first name, Gould was his last name. And it's a ring around the sky that's tilted at an angle to the plane of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. and, and you can notice this yourself if you go out at night, you'll see Orion late in the year. Uh, a lot of bright stars there, and it's, it's tilted. It's not on the Milky Way. On the other side of the sky, there's Scorpius, again, which is just off the plane of the Milky Way. And also kind of connecting those two through um, uh, Taurus, for example, Cepheus, uh, Cassiopeia, that sort of thing. Um, and it was long thought that this ring was uh, a physical structure, that it was formed maybe by a big clump of matter colliding with the Milky Way and triggering all this the formation of these bright stars we see along this ring around the sky, the Gould Belt. So along with bright stars, there's lots of dark clouds there too. So the researchers measured a lot of the clouds that we that they would find along the Gould Belt. And with these highly precise measurements, they thought they would just map out the Gould Belt in, in, high, in high resolution, essentially. But what they found instead, what was that there's really no physical belt. There's actually this wave, this Radcliffe wave on one side of the sky, um, basically from Orion through Cygnus. And then on the other side of the sky, another structure called the split. So this is more near Scorpius and Centaurus. So these were kind of the two anchors of the Gould belt. But what they found is that there are actually two different physical structures that just happened to... Well, I mean, any two points you can draw a ring through. So the Gould Belt was actually an artificial construction through these two physically coherent structures. So it's kind of a projection effect along along the sky. So essentially, unfortunately, they declared the Gould Belt dead as a, as a physical entity. And in its place, we've got the Radcliffe wave on one end and the split on the other end. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. Very cool. So I noticed that, and one of the neat things I thought about in the article is that uh, you detail the targets um, from Cygnus through to Canis Major. So it's this, it's this very broad uh, piece of sky. And this is kind of the sky that we see now. If we went outside right now and, and it's extremely cloudy here, it's warm for a change, but it's cloudy. And you, you look towards um, the west, high in the west sky right now, we have the summer triangle and sort of right at the top of that is Cygnus right now. And that's sort of like in a way like would be the starting point. And then you could sort of observe throughout the night and maybe uh, sort of in a way you could have your own bit of a, a Radcliffe wave marathon and observe your way up and through uh, Cygnus and down into Canis Major, which is uh, uh, not nice and high until about 3 a.m. Uh, these days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, this is uh, the time of year, kind of November, December, January, where you can see the entire length of the uh, uh, Radcliffe wave. So it starts um, kind of at the heart of, of Cygnus, 
which is this time of year, uh, low in the northwest, uh, from the northern hemisphere anyway. And you could follow it all the way across to Orion and Canis Major rising in the southeast. So yeah, it is just like a Messier marathon you can do in the spring. I guess you can do a Radcliffe wave marathon this time. <laughs> I think, I think it, would take, it would take some work. I think it would take some work. I know there. I was recently uh, working on some of these. I don't know if I get that or not. And I know there's one object I spent 90 minutes uh, observing uh, to get a decent observation of. So some of the stuff are, some of the objects here are fairly difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are. In fact, the original study of the Radcliffe wave was a precise measurements to dark clouds, which are basically black as coal. Yeah. Not very interesting to, to visual observers, as I mentioned in the article. Yeah. Um, but I spoke with one of the one of the researchers, one of the lead authors of the paper, Joao Elves at the University of Vienna. Mm-hmm. And he's not only a professional astronomer, but also an amateur astronomer. He, lo- he loves this stuff and knows the sky okay. quite well. So we built up a list of, of dark nebula that can be seen or, or imaged, but also bright nebula that are associate, associated with them that, that go from, from you know these points in Cygnus uh, all the way to Orion. And a lot of them are favorites. Um, some of them are not along the wave. So mm-hmm. there's, there's other foreground and background objects, uh, like the California nebula doesn't make the cut. Yeah, I see. I see. 1396 and in, in Cepheus, a yeah. very nice nebula where the yeah. elephant trunk is. Yeah. Again, it's not quite along the wave. There's a big dust cloud there, but the precise measurements from from this uh, study, which was published in in Nature, show that it's just in front of or behind the wave. A lot of these clouds. Yeah, and it's neat because many of the topics and one of the things that we focus of uh, on in our podcast are uh, what you can see visually. And so many times the astrophysics articles are more along that theoretical bend. So I really like the fact that that here is some relatively recent uh, information being only uh, two to three years old. And then, um, you know, you, you've done the hard work here of kind of threading together that knot, that line between what the science is telling us now and what we can actually see through our telescope. So I really appreciate that as an observer. I think it's a really uh, well-written piece. And I, I think you've kind of hit on something that will appeal to many people uh, who like to sort of push the limits a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of fun to observe this way. Um, you'll, you'll see on cloudy nights, some of the more advanced observers see it this way. Instead of seeing the sky as just a, a random collection of uh, fairly beautiful objects, there's actually some 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 science and some physics behind the the structure of the milky way that explain why we see things in certain parts of the sky and how they're related to each other so that's kind of a fun way to observe you know to understand why the sky is laid out as it is not just um you know not just a uh, kind of knocking uh, objects off a off a list to observe yeah. although that can be fun too there's a bit of a narr- there's a bit of a narrative there, eh? Like there's a bit of a story, and it's yeah, it's really cool that uh, that you've tracked that down for us. Um, one of the things I was going to ask about is some of those clouds are, are pretty old. I was surprised um, when I read in the article, uh, fifty to thirty million years old. Some of these clouds are. That's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not not super old, uh, I guess, in galactic terms. That was always kind of the age of the Gould Belt too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a fairly recent uh, construction. So any stars we see along here, any bright stars are 
likely no more than 30 million years old and the clouds might be a bit older and again the stars are forming out of the clouds and still are most of the most of the Radcliffe wave is just dark soot so there's going to be in the next uh, 10 or 20 million years a lot of new nebula and star clusters forming here stay tuned <laughs> <laughs> very cool very cool so Maybe we should uh, start talking about what some of these uh, some of these targets can be. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the star factories and Cygnus? And uh, maybe we could start. Uh, where does the Radcliffe wave uh, begin or, or terminate in Cygnus? And uh, what can you see in and around uh, Cygnus that is part of the Radcliffe wave? Okay. Yeah. In the article, there's a little diagram that shows uh, shows shows the. Uh, the wave and how it goes up and down around the galactic plane. So just briefly, one end of it is in Cygnus and that end of the wave is about 5,000 light years from us. Then uh, as we get through Cepheus and so forth, it gets a little closer. By the time we get to Taurus, we're kind of staring the wave in the face. It's about 450 light years away, the dark clouds in Taurus. And then again, as we move towards Orion and into Canis Major, it gets more distant still. Uh, again, it's um, about 5,000 light years away on the other side. Uh, in Cygnus at the beginning, the wave actually starts uh, at something called the Cygnus X cloud or the Cygnus X star factory, which is a huge region of stellar associations and molecular clouds kind of right in the heart of Cygnus, kind of between uh, Gamma Cygni and Alberio. Uh, but we can't see it. It's obscured by by a lot of ga intervening gas and dust because it's so far away. Mm -hmm. um, so we get our first. Um, if you go, if you're an imager, the first thing you'd see at that end of the Radcliffe wave is the Snow Angel Nebula or Sharpless uh, uh, 106, which is about 3,500 light years away. It's a tiny uh, emission nebula, quite beautiful. I mean, the images from this Hubble, Hubble Space Telescope are great. You can certainly image it. It's a small object. But the first visual glimpse, and this is primarily an article in Sky and Telescope for visual observers, the yeah. first visual glimpse is the North America Nebula, mm -hmm. uh, just around uh, around Deneb. So everybody knows that North American Pelican, uh, it's separated by by dark nebula. There's dark nebula in front and behind. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but this is the uh, the first view we get of uh, of the Radcliffe wave, and there's a young star that's just formed out of the um, gas and dust around here that that illuminates those two nebula okay um so we're just getting a taste of it there but that's a, a both photogenic um and also something you can see with your unaided eye and perfect sky or uh it's an easy object to image and it's a great object to see with binoculars or a wide field telescope i i have to say something though i and because I, I know i know what some of our listeners are like because we communicate with them quite a bit and we have we have many people out there with 20 inch and larger dobsonians and i can just see a few of them saying i'm going to take i'm going to see that uh, sh2-106 snow angel i'm going to see that visually <laughs> uh, it, it can it can be done i've never seen it myself and 20 inches might 20 inches might be might be getting you in the in the range there it would be very curious to see if anyone could see that visually yeah yeah yeah, I like I looked it up and I couldn't not quickly anyway. I couldn't find any visual observations and uh, and certainly with the equipment I have, it's uh, it's beyond my scope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Sure. Yeah, I've 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 got a, a snapshot of it, I think through a Celestron six and a small uh, small camera just to see if I could find it. It was just tiny. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, it's one of those objects. So I was interested in uh, in sort of moving up and to the left or to the north, um, sort of to the north uh, west ish or northeast ish direction. Um, going up to the cocoon nebula, I really enjoyed your uh, observation of the cocoon where where you had your 12 by 36. Uh, I'm guessing those are the uh, Canon Canon image stabilized binoculars out. Uh, yep. Taking a look at that region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's a that's a nice area there for sure. Um, there's a couple other big dark clouds in Cygnus, uh, T 3 for example, which is uh, near the North American Nebula and the Northern Coal Sac. Uh, but the next light we see along the Radcliffe wave is the cocoon. So that's mm -hmm. IC 5146. Yeah. And that was explicitly listed in the paper on the, on the list of dark clouds that they measured. So yeah. they, they measured, measured to the, to the dark nebula, but the cocoon of course is an emission nebula and a reflection nebula and a dark nebula altogether. So it's just a lovely object, especially for imagers. Um, but yeah, in, in dark sky, you can you can spot it in, in binoculars, uh, certainly the dark cloud, yeah. because it just looks like an absence of stars. And there's a, a, an embedded star cluster too. I forgot about that, Colander 470, I 470, think. 470, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a very nice part of the sky. Yeah, I was I was really excited to read it because, and and I think and I put in my this is a very crude sketch because um, I'm just starting the uh, the white on black technique. I don't know. In, in yeah, yeah, that's that was really nice work. Yeah, <laughs> that was my first sketch that I did, and it was at about like three or four o'clock in the morning. So it's a little rougher. Things have improved uh, since, but uh, I so was that's, that wasn't. Uh, dark on white and then in, inverted in, in Photoshop, it was, uh, it was sketched that way. That's the way it was sketched. Very <laughs> I guarantee nice. you. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Very nice. A little bit, always fun to challenge yourself. And I, I enjoyed it because you were talking about going out with your 12 by 36s and taking a look for B168, um, which is this beautiful, I find that, that the dark lane visually through binoculars has more of like a straight line appearance than the meandering appearance it seems to have like in photographs or on star charts myself. pretty much yeah pretty yeah. much yeah but I, and it's I, it's about two degrees long so you do need some field of view there for sure yeah exactly and i just really enjoyed the fact that you were out with your binoculars and then i had been out with my binoculars and then you were using your uhc um in your 85 millimeter telescope and i have my 100 millimeter telescope a very similar uh instruments and so it was i, I really felt like i was kind of beside you when you were uh, <laughs> making these observations yeah 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 the key thing is dark sky but uh, yeah mm -hmm. you can see these things with very modest optics and it's just a beautiful part of the sky too. There's, there's so much to see. It, it's ideal for binoculars. And in my mind too, it's just a, a wonderful, a wonderful way to spend, you know, a couple of hours observing is, is right yeah. in that area. Yeah. There's tons of stuff here. There's a lot of star clusters too, um, mm -hmm. lesser known ones, but it turns out these are not physically connected to the wave. They're, they're just too old. Mm -hmm. um, so again, as, as we follow this part of the sky, we're looking for the physically connected structures are essentially emission nebula or dark nebula. But uh, yeah, it is a great part of the sky for sure. So how dark a sky um, were you getting under? So for me, I was under, I guess like a Bortle three and a half or so sky um, viewing some of these same things. And it, it was really cool because I think out of your list, I think I had observed like 
something about uh, about a third of the list, and I had sketched about I don't know probably five or six of these objects this this fall. So yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of them are pretty pretty bright, and uh, so yeah, I, I would normally I go just west of Calgary into Kananaskis country, they call it. So as I look west there towards Cygnus, it's probably Bortle 3 or Bortle 2. I've never, I don't okay. I don't spend too much time with the particulars there, but it's pretty dark, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, it needs to be a, a reasonably dark sky to start, uh, start seeing some of this stuff. So I was also interested, you included one of my favorite objects in the list, list there, which is the... Uh, index catalog or the IC353 in the, in the Taurus molecular cloud. And you described uh, observing those uh, dark lanes kind of like as fingers. I like that observation. Yeah, I've just barely seen that visually. It's a beautiful, beautiful object to image. But this is the, the closest part of the wave. So as I mentioned before, it's about 450 light years distance. So mm -hmm. 10 times closer than, than, than what we were seeing in Cygnus. So this is a complex, I guess, it's hard to see the shape of it. I mean, it really is finger-like. Yeah. Um, it spans, you know, it's about 20 degrees wide and it's kind of 10 degrees northeast of a line between the Pleiades and Hyades. Yeah. If, if you like. And so, yeah, I could see them with uh, some of those constellation binoculars that 2.1 power by 42 millimeter. Oh. Um, I, without, I, a, without a filter, Brian? Just Yeah, with, yeah. yeah without, a, without a filter, yeah. Mm, I could, awesome. you could just just barely see the absence of stars, um, and so yeah. On that same night, I grabbed a camera and I thought, "Am I really seeing what I'm seeing?" And just um, you know, did a quick shot with a a mirrorless camera to see if there if I was looking in the right part of the sky. And yeah, sure enough, that's it. Mm. So it is possible. This is not an easy object to see the Taurus molecular cloud, but it's mm -hmm. it's well worth it for sure. It's a really interesting approach too. I've never thought of you know, taking the camera out to validate some of these challenging observations to, you know, just do a bit of a longer exposure to see if it, you know, if you are kind of in the right area, that's, that's yeah. a great idea. I like yeah, it. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of stargazing with the DSLR, you know, it's amazing what you can pull out in just 20 seconds at a good ISO. These cameras are quite something. Yeah. No kidding. That's awesome. Cool. Um, let's see. Yeah. And so that's just sort of east of the, uh, the Pleiades. And the question I had was about the uh, Messe uh, 45, because Messe 45 is a star cluster and it's passing through um, a nebula. And of course, that nebula is reflecting some of the light and uh, it, it shows up as sort of a blue gossamer uh, glow around the uh, M45 star cloud, but those aren't related. So I was, I was wondering, and, and I, I, I like, don't want to put you on the spot or anything, Brian, but I was wondering if, if maybe that uh, M45 uh, star cloud or, or the cloud that's, that, that's around M45, if that was part of the Radcliffe wave or not, or, or whether or not you knew that off the top of your head. So that's a, a super good question. So the way the wave was discovered is that they, they, they knew where these dark clouds were and they just measured along, they measured the distances to stars along the line of sight to pinpoint the distances to these waves. Mm -hmm. So they looked in very specific directions and one of the directions they did not look in as far as I know is towards the Pleiades. Okay. So the Pleiades is too old itself to be part of the wave, but it is about the right distance. Okay. So I certainly can't say for sure that that dust uh, cloud that the Pleiades is moving through is not part of the wave, mm -hmm. but uh, it wasn't part of the uh, 
specifically part of the study, so I can't say that it is either. But that's a very interesting question. Hmm. And so now I'm curious. <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, but it's like my own curiosity kind of peeking out here because <laughs> you've been chatting with uh, with the folks that are doing the astrophysical research. And do you know if they plan, and, and it sounds like they, well, they published this back in 2020 and you've been chatting to them since, but do they plan on doing like any more further investigation to see um, you know, which objects and, and maybe even discover some new objects that might have been uh, uh, unknown before this time? Yeah, the work continues for sure. I think what they're most interested in is to see the, the kinematics of, of the wave. So how it mo how it's moving through the Milky Way, uh, both, you know, away from us and, and laterally, but more specifically how it's moving with respect to itself. So is it is it oscillating like mm -hmm. a wave above and below the, the the plane of the Milky Way? And it seems like the answer is is yes. But um, they're doing a lot more studies, again, with, with data from the Gaia Space Telescope, which gives very precise directions to stars in front of and behind the molecular clouds. Okay. So, yeah, there's tons of work going on. There's a lot of papers on the Radcliffe Wave if you want to search on, uh, on archive.org or something like that. Yeah, I, I took a look and I, I did take a, I just took the briefest of look at the uh, original article just to kind of see, but... Um, you know, it, as, as much fun as it is to read academic papers, which I spend some part of my days doing, um, I gotta say, when I'm relaxing, I just wanna sit down with, with Sky and Telescope and, <laughs> and have somebody do the hard work for me. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Even the astronomy's art, astronomy articles at Astrophysical Journal or Nature or Science can be, yeah, they can be a little terrifying, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm working on getting publications up online um, after Christmas. So I know I know what it's like. I work on the other end of the business. And uh, yeah, when I relax and just want to do some astronomy, um, I want to leave my work behind me. Good stuff. Um, you mentioned uh, Orion and Canis Major are, are the brightest, some of the brightest parts of the wave. And uh, I just wonder kind of maybe a little bit more specifically, um, what what targets, what regions in uh, Orion and Canis Major um, might be some of the uh, best associations for people to try to target? Well, again, I think uh, the big names here, so the Orion Nebula, which is kind of the jewel of the old Gould Belt, is also the jewel of the Radcliffe Wave. So this is oh, okay. probably the brightest uh, star-forming region along the Radcliffe Wave. And again, there's tons of, of dark dust here and so forth. Um, uh, in, towards Orion, but we're seeing little blisters here of initial star formation along the Radcliffe Wave. So the Orion Nebula is the, the brightest by far. Mm -hmm. If you look towards um, uh, the Flame, Flame Nebula, uh, for example, which is adjacent to the Horsehead, that, all that complex is also very likely part of the Radcliffe Wave. So again, well-known objects. Yeah. The flame, flame is easy to see uh, visually, yeah. the Horsehead not so much. Yeah, because the flame, that's NGC 2023, I think, or the tank truck nebula, the Christmas tree nebula, sometimes people call it. Uh, twenty, Yeah, 23 or 24, I can't remember, yeah. And then uh, that one I've seen in binoculars just in my 7x50s seven, seven from just a reasonably dark site out at the uh, Moncton location there when I yeah. used to observe in, uh, in Ontario. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then a lot of the other nebulosity there you see, so there's fainter nebulosity, the, the Barnard's Loop, for example, which... Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, loops around above Orion's belt and then then east of the Orion Nebula and then back down towards um, towards Rigel. Mm -hmm. Very hard to see visually, very easy to image. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, likely another assembly along the Radcliffe wave. And then uh, I've never been able to see this myself, but the Lambda Orionis Nebula, which is kind of at the head of Orion, it's about, I don't know, five or six degrees wide, very nice star cluster there, Colander mm -hmm. 69, I think. Uh, the nebula itself is great to image, but I've never seen it visually. But it is probably um, associated with a, uh, the Radcliffe wave also. You, you've seen this, Chris, I think? Yeah, I've, I've seen it. Um, I'm going to just skip back to the, the Barnard's loop for a second because I'm with you on that. It can be really difficult to observe, but... Thanks to Shane, I've made so many observations of it, actually, because he made, I should have brought it up here. He made me this tiny little telescope that's, oh, Shane has his there. Yeah, he can just reach back and grab it probably because um, he, he made one for himself. He kept the good one and, and then I, I got his um, broken parts. Yeah, there we go. Ah. So, so we, we each have one of these. Now, this looks like a finder scope, but rest assured, this is like just about a thousand dollar instrument. And the magic to these telescopes is you can put in a two inch diagonal and a two inch wide field eyepiece. And of course, then you can use your two inch uh, H beta filter. And with that, you can actually just sort of sweep through that whole area. And Barnard's loop is not easy to see, but I would say it's um, pretty easy to see. Like it's probably about as easy as seeing Oh, I would say like the uh, Eagle Nebula through uh, like an 80 millimeter telescope, for example, okay. when you use this type of con configuration. Yeah, it, it's not it, it's it's interesting, but you can actually see I can get about 10 degrees field of view with that telescope. And so it actually encompasses the majority of, of at least the brighter section of, uh, of the Barnard's loop there. So 50 millimeters, what, what's the focal ratio on that little instrument? What are they? It's, it's a speedy F5. F5, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah. And so then we use these sort of wide. I have a bunch of these inexpensive, like 30 millimeter, and then more expensive, like uh, 32 millimeter um, Japanese eyepieces that, uh, yeah. that, that yeah. are pretty lightweight. So uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not a great combination with like the Nagler 31. But what, what are you using for a really low power wide field eyepiece, Brian? Um, depends what I'm using. If I'm using the binocular telescope, uh, the 100 millimeter binoculars, I usually use a set of um, 24 millimeter panoptics. Okay. And uh, in the in the Teleview 85, I'll use the the same eyepiece. Or if uh, it's a bigger object and it's dark sky, I'll, I'll use a 35 millimeter panoptic, so a big two inch eyepiece. Okay. Which I think gives I think gives four degrees in that telescope. Mm-hmm. But, nice. uh, yeah, yeah, the 35 pan is a great eyepiece. You know, it's yeah. it's a nice blend of wide field and not too heavy of an eyepiece. I, I really like that one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really nice. It's got a, a long eye relief. It's kind of hard to mm -hmm. position your eye just right, but it's worth the effort for sure. You know, when, when I had it, I had that same issue and I bought the Teleview eye cup extender and that yeah. helped me a ton. Just yeah, it, it made it so that. much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, big help. Big help for sure. Nice. So it, it, yeah, I might, now that you've, you've inspired me now to try the Lambda Orionis Nebula, because I've never seen it visually, maybe I'll give that a go with uh, with the Teleview 85 or maybe even in the, uh, in the, the binoculars. 
Oh, I even put notes. I even put, I, I think I sent you that image. I even put notes on my image for a change. And I was using my, that's with my 100 millimeter and an H beta filter. Um, and uh, I observed that just on October 7th. Just for, uh, for Lambda Orionis? Yeah, for Lambda Orionis. So, but I don't know what power. Um, I think I was probably using either my 32 mil or my 40 millimeter. So it's given somewhere between like 18 and 25 uh, power, but it, it showed up quite well. I'm going to say okay. not, not as easy as the horse head or sorry, not as easy as Barnard's loop. Uh, definitely not as difficult as the horse head. Okay. Yeah. Each beta. Yeah. I don't have one of those. Maybe it's, Santa Claus will bring me one. <laughs> and if, and if Santa Claus doesn't, uh, I, I, my, one of my H I have, I have a lot of filters. I have a bit of a problem. Um, some people have a, have a, what do they call it? FOMO or fear of missing out. I have a fear of missing filters. Um, <laughs> one of my filters is in Calgary right now. Oh, and, and so, so if, uh, if he was so kind, our listener, Eric, I'm sure would be happy to share with you my two inch H beta filter <laughs> observations. It, it is over there somewhere. I'm sure we can connect you with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So just, uh, just let me know. We can arrange that pretty easily. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He's in Calgary as well. All right. Um, yeah. So seeing the Lambda Orionis, I think, yeah, that one, in, that one is really nice. Some people have claimed to see it naked eye just with the H beta. I haven't been, wow. Uh, that lucky, but uh, but I think with the H beta on the 85 millimeter, that should be uh, that should be a really nice sight, actually. Okay, okay, yeah. it's on the list for the winter then. Yeah, I I haven't had any luck seeing the horse head uh, in the past two years. Not sure if uh, if you've been able to track that one down, but uh, I, I've been out of luck. I've never seen it. Uh, I could ask both of you since you're right here. What's the smallest aperture you've ever used to see the horse head? I, mean, I haven't I haven't actually seen that one yet. Um, my winter observing under dark skies, like I uh, like we were chatting before we pressed record, Brian, I don't get out to too many dark skies in the winter time and uh, that's high on my list. Um, you know, if I do get out, you know, hopefully this winter under a dark sky, I'll, I'll certainly give it a go. but Chris, I know you've seen it a few times. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it about five times. Um, I've hunted it down successfully three times myself. Um, and in my five inch apochromat, uh, using the filter that's in Calgary and my 40 millimeter Pentax XW, which is about 19 power, uh, mm -hmm. I'm able to, uh, I'm able to get it. Um, the, the big thing with the horse set is you want to see the, uh, that nebula, um, what is it? IC 434. You want to see IC 434 and then like, just forget anything, any image that you've ever seen from from uh like a like a deep sky photograph or a ccd image just take the black pen from the men in black and just weep that from your mind and mm -hmm. what you're going to see is you're just going to see kind of like a bit of a, a divot or a deviation in uh in ic434 which is the uh, nebula that the horse that is superimposed in front of and and that seems to be kind of the trick there's a star just opposite i think there's a nebula over there which is like i'm going to say it's like NGC 2095 or something like that. But anyway, it's sort of like this whitish nebula. And on the nights that I've seen it, I've tracked that nebula down first, whatever nebula is opposite that. And then I've been able to see the, the horse head. Um, and then I've seen it through some bigger instruments. But I got to admit, even in like 12 or 16 inch instruments, it, it wasn't that much more visible. You could just, it was just like the image scale um, was larger. But 
I always think it's kind of unfortunate that the horse head is probably the most famous dark nebula because <laughs> yes. it's like bloody, probably the hardest one to see, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? It's very easy to, to image. It doesn't take much to, to have that pop out on a camera, but yeah, visual, yeah. it's a very, very tricky thing. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of tricky ones, have you, and, and this one, this one probably dogged me for longer than anything else is to see the witch head uh, nebula. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. I, I claim so in the article. Uh, again, this was from uh, west of Calgary here on a super yeah. clear night, yeah. but it's extremely hard to see. So this this blob of uh, of gas, I see twenty one eighteen. Yeah, like, this was explicitly listed in in the original paper, and uh, at least in the data they used for the original paper in in Nature. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely along the Radcliffe Wave. It's a reflection nebula, just a few degrees west of Rigel. Yep. And it's about three degrees long, I think, one degree wide. And it, yep. again, great, great. It, well, actually, it's even hard to image, to be honest. You can't really use a filter because it's a reflection nebula. So you can't use a narrow band filter. Yeah. But uh, I, I think I've seen the, the brightest part of it yep. with the 85. Just yep. a, a little smudge about yep. a degree or so south or southwest of Beta Eridani yep. in, in Aridinus. So certainly not the full view of the witch's head, but just the brightest part of it. I mean, I thought, ah, maybe it's frost on the eyepiece, but, you know, I tapped the telescope and warmed up the eyepiece and looked again. I was pretty sure it was there, and it was quite rewarding to see that visually. Yeah. When when was it you observed that? Uh, That was, um, let's see, just after I moved here. So that must have been, like, early 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one that one dogged me for so long, and I kind of thought I saw it one night, but it was it was really um, like ethereal. Like I I never really felt like I had it nailed. There was there was one night I thought I saw it, a couple nights I thought I saw hints of it, and then this autumn I had a really really good night, and I got up and what time did I I sketched it at uh, I didn't even put the time in, but I'm pretty sure it was like three a.m. and I spent like. I think the better part of an, an hour and a half, uh, getting it uh, nailed down and, and actually getting a getting a sketch off. And but I didn't I didn't really look at any charts or anything. I just went out because I'm so familiar with the field because I failed so many times that I kind of know where it is generally. And so I just drew in the brightening uh, in the four inch, and then I was like, I don't know if this is it. And then when I went in and I looked at the um, software and I went back and forth, I'm like, yeah. I, I got the right brightening in the right spots, but I was pretty doubtful until I did that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes some time to be sure for sure. We'll love see. to see it again. Yeah, the other objects that are that are on there um, that are on the top of my observing list to to do are the uh, the Seagull Nebulae. I, I failed at seeing that one quite a few times as well. That's right up at the top of my list. Yeah, it's not again not much much to look at visually. Um, yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it's a nice little object, and this is towards the end of the wave. So again, we're we're down in um, Canis Major and Monoceros and uh, and that part of the sky, uh, about five thousand light years away. So the Seagull Nebula is IC twenty one seventy seven. Yeah, it's uh, stuck in a big cloud of dust called um, the Canis Major OB one cloud. So there's okay. a stellar association and a lingering cloud there that was part of the study. But um, yeah, I saw it in a 10-inch Dobsonian. It wasn't much to see. 
There's oh. a lot more accessible uh, um, with the camera, but oh. uh, it's a nice, nice little object to see it. And it's, uh, what it's else pretty is big, it? isn't it? Isn't isn't the seagull a fierce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's bigger than than the full moon. Oh yeah. wow, huge! Oh no, sorry, that's not right. The full moon's 30, 30 arc minutes. It's about twenty arc minutes around. Okay, the part that I saw. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like kind of like the bright. It has like a bright core, I think. Or something. Yeah, I didn't see much of a shape. I just saw a kind of a linear nebulosity. Yeah. Uh, whereas the imagers can pull out that that nice seagull shape. Yeah. Yeah. I'm eager to see that one. The other one you had on there and I had this on my list to observe this year and I have like no excuse. I don't know why I didn't get this one was the Iris Nebula. I keep meaning to, I think I've seen it before, but I wanted to sketch it, but uh, I didn't. Get yeah. It. That's a, that's a nice one. Um, I can't, uh, I can't pound the table and say that's definitely part of the wave, but it very likely is just from the age of the star mm -hmm. and the nature of the nebula itself. So it's a, it's a star that's uh, surrounded by a cloud of uh, dust that it's uh, lighting up and also some dark nebulosity. And the distance to it is just right. I don't think that particular nebula was part of the study, but mm -hmm. just the age of the star and the distance to it means it's probably along that wave. Yeah. And so that's in Cepheus. Um, I don't know how many imagers listen to this podcast, but um, in that part of the sky... In that part of the sky, there's some really photogenic dark nebula that are certainly along the Radcliffe wave. So that's uh, LDN 988. Oh, okay. Uh, LDN um, 1251. Okay. 1265 and LDN 1333, all in Cepheus or Cassiopeia, I can't remember. But they're all up in that part of the sky. They kind of, um, they kind of mark the part of the Radcliffe wave that extends the furthest above the plane of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. um, all very photogenic, but uh, you know they're for serious imagers. Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. see these beautiful images of these dark nebula with lighter regions around it. You know, it looks like like big smoke puffs along the Milky Way. Yeah, that's what that's what these objects are. Yeah, no, so. it's it's very neat. Yeah, the iris was on the front of the uh, RASC observers calendar this year, and uh, I, yeah. I knew. I had a preview, of course, because I'm the editor for the calendar. So I had wanted to see it. And then I don't know why, but I, I ended up sketching the California Nebula um, three weeks ago. But then it turns out that's not even on this list, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's close to the way, but not not quite on there. Yeah, that was yeah. the first thing I asked uh, uh, Catherine Zucker, who I think was the leader, the second author on this. She said, no, it doesn't quite doesn't quite fit. Darn. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I always, when people are asking me, um, cause I'm, I'm a really big H beta observing fan. That's one of my, apparently, yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah well, I, I've been doing it for like 20 years trying to observe all the H beta objects and now trying to, I, I think I've observed all the ones that you can see with a small scope. Now I'm going through, I'm trying to sketch them all. So when people are asking what to start with, I'm like, start with the California nebula. Cause you can even see that in binoculars without any filter at all. Uh, it's that bright. And then you can, you can kind of start there and maybe go up to the flame nebula and then uh, work through some of the other bright ones. Well, I think uh, if you haven't done it already, that would be a great uh, topic for a podcast. Cause I keep looking at H beta filters and think, wow, well, what can I see with that? Like maybe the horse head, maybe the California, that's about it. Oh yeah. So well, there's, if oh, there's more, I, I I would love to be educated for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the uh, the big one there around Lambda Orionis is one that responds well to that. 
Um, and then there's some other, uh, well, the, I like the cocoon. I like that one in H beta as well. UHC H beta works well. So I should have brought it up, but I've got a big, it, it looks like some sort of monstrosity of, uh, of a diagonal for a refractor. Um, but it actually has a big filter slide on it. And then okay. what I can do is I can load up. I have a, now I have a Teleview H beta, um, it's called a Nebustar, but I like to say it's a Neb Buster because it really busts those nebulas. And then we've got the uh, Lumicon O3 and Lumicon UH3, UH3, uh, both Gen 3s. And then I keep an open slot. So then what I can do is I can be viewing without a filter at all. And then I can slide back and forth to see which one is is going to give uh, give the best views. Oh, nice. It's a, it's a neat setup, but they don't work too well on the reflection nebulas, of course, um, working on something to, to yeah. reveal those a little more. And one of them is, and this, this, there's, there's a few objects here that have really dogged me and I failed to see, um, Sigil being one of them. The other one was, uh, the IC348 nebula. Uh, you mentioned there's, there is a cluster there, but that one I have failed to see on so many occasions. That is a tough one to see too. That, that is a hard one. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen. I've seen. Um, it looks to me just like a maybe a fuzzy star. It's pretty small. Yeah. Um, so it would definitely uh, profit from some aperture. I could yeah. just barely see it with a ten inch. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. Not not the star, but the nebulosity. The nebula. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. Even in my five inch, I've never been definitively able to uh, to say that I saw it. So. Yeah, I'm working on getting some some bigger aperture at some point in time. So that's uh, that's definitely one. That that's actually good. I don't mind hearing that someone has seen it and they but they it took them a ten inch and I'm like okay, then just the five inches are just they they just might not have the light grasp and resolution to uh, to pull in in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. cool. Let's see. That that's kind of like our list of objects there, but. Do you want to just chat about the uh, the gear a little bit, Shane? Maybe uh, about the the Teleview eighty five and that kind of stuff. Sure. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of aperture eighty five to one hundred. Um, it, it is a sweet spot for a lot of objects like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm always astonished, like. Um, I've said it a few times on the podcast before that my first refractor was an 80 millimeter refractor, but I had that alongside a 12 inch light bridge and I never really gave the 80 millimeter, uh, any thought as a, like a serious telescope. I always thought it's way too small. Why would I ever use that little telescope when I have a big 12 inch, uh, Dobsonian beside me? And the more and more I started to use it. And even now with my 76 millimeter uh, refractor, um, it still astonishes me just how much a, a three inch will show you, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that it's not always that far off from say a four inch or five inch, depending on the objects uh, that you're observing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I, if I could have one telescope, it might just be a, a you know, about a 80 millimeter refractor because of how portable and easy yeah. to use and wide field and capable for just about any object out there. So I, I, I just love that class of refractor. Yeah, yeah, the wide the wide field is nice. That's what keeps me uh, using small refractors. You can almost see the way think astronomers bifurcate visual observers. Like, I guess like you, I had a first time I got an apochromatic refractor. I thought, wow, this is really nice. I think it was a sixty six millimeter. I still have it. So I just keep buying better and better refractors 
roughly at that aperture, kind of between mm -hmm. 70 and 100 millimeters. Mm -hmm. the, other, the other team of visual observers just gets bigger and bigger and better <laughs> Dobsonians. They go yeah. for, for the, you know, for, for, the, for the aperture rather than the wide field. Yeah. I guess both would be ideal, but yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they both have their purpose, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you guys, uh, I've, again, I follow your podcast regularly. You see tons of stuff. You've got, um, you've both got 100 millimeter uh, Takahashi's. Is that what you use mostly these days? Or Yeah, for me, that's my primary telescope now, um, the TSA 102 uh, triplet. Mm -hmm. uh, my first triplet that I've ever owned, and uh, I love it. It's a wonderful telescope. Um, I was able to split Antares with it. Uh, when was that? Kind of early summer, late spring. Um, and it's it's been a wonderful telescope. I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I've looked through Chris's 100 quite a bit, and it's, you know, you're splitting hairs between them. They're pretty much equal telescopes. And, uh, um, you know, that four-inch class, again, is just a super versatile telescope really enjoy it yeah yeah it's the perfect kind of instrument for following the structure of the milky way and um yeah again this kind of the radcliffe wave is just one of the many structures along the milky way you know that we can that we can follow it's just uh when you look at the sky holistically like this like these structures it's it's much more interesting than just knocking things off your you know herschel 400 list or something although that's got that's got its place for sure Mm -hmm. But you start to see the sky in the Milky Way in three dimensions. It's it's quite interesting. Well, yeah, when when you think of all of this as a system, or you know, like you mentioned at the start, physically connected, um, it, it sort of changes the perspective on some of these objects. And I I think that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this article a lot. Um, the other one too is is as Chris mentioned, it just felt like I was observing with you, and you know, reading about observing this stuff with an 85 millimeter telescope or some of this stuff with an 85 millimeter was uh, quite fascinating. It, uh, you know, it, it definitely gave me um, sort of a new, a new observing program, I guess, for this time of the year, as, as Chris mentioned, to do the, the Radcliffe marathon, so to speak. Yeah. So I think yeah, that's absolutely. a great idea. Absolutely. Yeah. If Sky and Telescope wants me to do fainter and fuzzier things, they can, maybe they can buy me a big daub. <laughs> seems otherwise like a good trade-off otherwise i'll work with what i've got i know they've got they've got some really serious big telescope deep sky observers who write for them they they do great stuff but uh yeah yeah, yeah i went to, i went to howard banich's talk uh yeah yeah two, i think it was two or three weeks ago um yeah and he uses a 28 inch and uh yeah yeah amazing stuff but for me it's like okay like that's cool but I don't have a 20. I'm never going to own a 28. It's just, Oh like... yeah. Oh, I love to read those articles, but yeah, it's just, it's just beyond me. It's, it's like reading someone, you know, going up Mount Everest. It sounds great. I'm never going to do it, but boy, yeah. it's really exciting. Yeah, no, it is. It is really cool. So um, I do have a follow-up uh, question kind of based on some of the stuff that you, uh, that you said there uh, just now, as well as at, at the beginning. And, and that is that with the Radcliffe wave, there's sort of like the Radcliffe wave proper, it sounds like. And then there's something called the split that goes down into Scorpius. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, not that much. It was just mentioned in passing in the original paper, and I haven't seen a ton on it. So this is um, this is all the good stuff down in Scorpius and Centaurus. So we've talked okay. about all kinds of dark and bright nebulae 
if you look in the northern summer sky, and if you can go a little further south, you'll see lots of nebulae and, uh, and, and dust clouds down there through, through, mm -hmm. through that part of the sky. So um, it's not, as far as I know, physically connected to the Radcliffe wave. It's a separate structure in its own right. Okay. And how it formed and how the Radcliffe wave formed, nobody knows. Hmm. Again, it might have been some extragalactic uh, dust cloud that came and smacked into the Milky Way and, and caused some star formation. Um, but it's a lot of material. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of mass along the wave. Um, I can't remember if I said how much in the article. Uh, I forget. But yeah, there's there's tons of stuff here. Um, so this is one of the big puzzles that they're trying to sort out. Not just how it moves along the Milky Way, both the Radcliffe wave and the split, but how it formed. And are there other structures like this nearby? Mm -hmm. And with these big space telescopes and so forth, we can start to see structures like this in other nearby spiral, spiral galaxies too, especially face-on spirals. So there's a lot of work in this area. That was neat. I was kind of hoping maybe you'd say that you were going to do a summer article on the split that goes down to Scorpius. Well, I, I might. I'm always looking for, you know, for <laughs> ideas for sure. That would be a good one. That same group um, with Catherine Zucker and Joao Elvez, they've, they've also published a lot of work on the local bubble. So we're kind of, as you may okay. know, the sun is in this clear bubble about four or five, 600 light years across that was likely blown out by, by a supernova and the sun just happens to be passing through it, which is why we get a nice clear view. So on the surface of the, that bubble are, are the Taurus molecular cloud, for example, mm -hmm. and other clouds. So yeah, there's all kinds of structures that they're sorting out and learning more about. Cool. Next one is the uh, Eridanus arc, which I think is part of that mm -hmm. bubble as, as well. Not sure if you've ever taken a stab at that. That one you no. need a filter for sure. Just uh, it's sort of uh, in Eridanus and then extends up into uh, up into Taurus. I think it's by I forget. It's like V Tauri or something like that. But anyway. oh, okay. No, I I don't know that one. I wonder if that's uh, that's along the wave. I don't know. Could could be. I think it's part of the bubble. For some reason, I thought that was part of the bubble. But okay. I could. Okay. Know. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, do you have anything else um, for this episode, Shane? No, no. Just thank you very much, Brian. It's always a, a pleasure to have these conversations with you. I, I really enjoyed the article and having the opportunity just to talk a little bit more about it. Um, and, you know, if anybody that's listening hasn't read the article, um, you know, I echo what Chris said that it's one of the better articles I've read in quite a while. So definitely check it out. Yeah. Page 26, January 2023, Sky and Telescope, yep. Riding the Radcliffe wave. Do you have anything that you wish to uh, leave our listeners with um, before we sign off, Brian? Um, I think that's it. Uh, you know, enjoy these sites, but also keep in mind as you surf the sky that, that the connection between these things and the structure of the Milky Way itself, it's, uh, it just it makes this uh, much, uh, much more rewarding. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Brian. Uh, I'm just going to scroll down to my outro notes. Um, and thanks for everybody uh, for listening. You can catch Brian's articles in Sky and Telescope magazine, where he is a contributing editor, and in Sky News magazine. Be sure to download one of his great getting started in stargazing guides at cosmicpursuits.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, 
Or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.